want to invite you this morning uh, to pray one more time as we ask for a special blessing. God, we gather here to hear from you. That is our prayer this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This week I was uh, reading a devotional and I came across this little story that I want to share with you. It's a life or an incident in the life of a man called Bishop Potter. Now, this is what the story says. He was sailing for, Euro for Europe on one of the great transatlantic ocean liners. When he went on board, he found that another passenger was to share the cabin with him. After going to see the accommodations, he came out to the purser's desk and inquired if he could leave his gold watch and other valuables in the ship's safe. He explained that ordinarily he never availed himself of that privilege, but he had been to this cabin and had met the man who was to occupy the other berth. Judging from his appearance, he was afraid that he may not be a very trustworthy person. The purser accepted the responsibility for the valuables and remarked it. It's all right, Bishop. I'll be very glad to take care of them for you. The other man has been up here and left his own valuables for the same reason. When it comes to dealing with people, I believe we need help. Especially when it comes to people that we don't know. Neighbors, strangers, we need help. For that reason, we came out with the series, Loving God, Loving People. Do you remember Pastor Ken talking about they had to be connected? You have to love God and people. You can't just love God and not love people. They have to be connected. You remember Dr. Venden, my homiletics professor, preach about what it is to love people. He used the word grace to explain that sometimes it's not fair. And this morning I want to continue this series. And this time I pick a story from the book of John. Story of Jesus that you're familiar. John chapter 4, starting in verse 4. I want to invite you, if you have your Bibles, if not, you can look at the PowerPoint screen. And I'm sorry if you read a lot this week, but this is a long story. Verse 4 says, now he had to go through Samaria. Now he had to go through Samaria. It's talking about Jesus. In fact, Jesus began his ministry. Things are taking off. His disciples are baptizing. Now the Pharisees and all the religious people are beginning to compare ministries, the ministry of Jesus versus the ministry of John the Baptist. Jesus baptized 20, John the Baptist only 3. Jesus baptized 100, John the Baptist only 7. Most of us don't like to be compared. Verse 3 of the book of John, chapter 4, the Bible says that when Jesus found out what was going on between the churches, he said, no, that's not what I want. So the Bible says that he packed his bags, he left Judea, and went back once more to Galilee. Now, if you look at the map, you're going to find out that the fastest route from Judea 
to Galilee is through Samaria. Verse 4, now he had to go through Samaria. Everyone, everyone knew this. He had to go through Samaria, the fastest route to Galilee. Josephus tells us that this was a three-day journey. So Jesus left Judea and went to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria. Let me tell you something. Some pious Jews, once in a while, they would avoid this route. And they would go around, even if it took them longer, because they didn't want to be around Samaritans. You see, they had issues. They didn't get along. There was drama. They had unresolved issues. And you know the story. It dates back to 722 B.C. If you look in the book of 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 23, you're going to find out how it all started. If you have your Bible, you just get an idea of how it all started. This drama, this history between Samaritans and Jews started 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 23. The Bible says the people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile in Assyria. The king of Assyria, not knowing what to do with the malls, with the empty homes, with the widows and the orphans, they decided to bring people from other towns. And you can read there, from Babylon, from Cutha, from Ava, from Hamath. He moved them there to replace the Israelites. If you keep reading, you're going to find out that they took over the Samaria. They took over the land. They took over the towns. They took over everything. At some point, there was an incident where some wild beasts came and killed some people. And people were like, oh, what's going on? The God of the land must be angry. Somebody needs to teach us how to worship this God, the God of the Israelites. So they sent a priest, verse 23, uh, um, I'm sorry, 28, it says, one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live in Bethel and taught them how to worship the Lord Yahweh, the God of Israel. Hang with me, verse 29. Nevertheless, each national group made its own God in the several towns where they settled and set them up in the shrines the people of Samaria had made at high places. Verse 33, they worshiped the Lord Yahweh, the God of Israel, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nation from which they had been brought. What's going on here? The people of Israel are in captivity. The people from other towns come, take over the land, the homes. There's a mixture of cultures, a mixture of races, a mixture of religions. When the exile is over and the Jews come, Surprise, we took over the land. Now, how will you feel if you take off on a vacation, three-week vacation, and then you come back and people are cooking in your kitchen, playing computer games, downloading music that you may not like, sleeping on the couches, playing around in the backyard, doing their own things, taking over the land? Now you understand. The Jews had issues. They didn't like this, and you don't like it. I don't like it. But that's not it. According to the New Interpreter's Bible, the, the most intense rivalry began actually 500 years later. The source of the enmity between Jews and Samaritans was a dispute about the correct location of the cultic center. Worship. And it was, the or, it was not the organ versus the drums. It was a, it was a, it was a place 
The Samaritans built a shrine on Mount Gerizim during the Persian period. And they claimed that this shrine, not the Jerusalem temple, was the proper place of worship. The shrine at Mount Gerizim was later destroyed by the Jewish troops in 128 B.C. But the schism between Jews and Samaritans continued. So you understand now what's going on? There's a history. You understand that people avoided hanging out with the Samaritans, avoided traveling to the land where there were Samaritans. But verse 4, the Bible says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. The writer of the book of John is trying to tell you something. Something's about to happen and you need to pay attention. Now he had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. If you keep reading verse 5, you're going to find out that Jesus came to a town in Samaria called Sikar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about sixth hour, the sixth hour. According to some commentaries, Jesus traveled anywhere between 15 to 20 miles. Now, he didn't travel first class, business class. There were no planes, no greyhounds, no taxis, not even a camel. He couldn't even afford a donkey. And his sandals, I mean, now we have some nice Brooks. Now we have some nice Nike shoes, Reebok. He had sandals. He's traveling for 15 to 20 miles. If you've done a marathon or a half a marathon, you know that every mile counts. He gets there to Jacob's well, and the Bible says he's tired. You see the humanity of Jesus. He's tired from the journey, and he was somewhere around noon, the hottest time of the day. He sat down. In the meantime, the disciples went to a 7-Eleven, Jack in the Box, Taco Bell, Costco. They're looking for Rob's, looking for something. They're looking for a place to buy food. Jesus is sitting down. Verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. It's the wrong time of the day. Most people came in the morning and the, or the evening. But this Samaritan came somewhere around noon. The Bible says that she came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, uh, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. You're a man. I'm a woman. How can you ask me for a drink? It's a little bit of attitude here. It's almost like, talk to my hand, you know. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? You see, there was a history. She was aware of it, but she was also surprised that Jesus was talking to her. Because at this point, Jesus was violating two social rules. The first rule, a Jewish man did not initiate conversation with a woman. In fact, Jewish teachers, rabbis, did not engage in public conversation with a woman, not even their wife. So imagine you're at the mall and your wife wants to buy you something. You're a rabbi. You're like, hey, honey, does it fit you? You're like, I can talk to you. There's no communication. Now, this, this woman is surprised that a man, a Jewish man, is speaking to her. 
Because there was a popular saying back then that said, he that talks much with a womankind brings evil upon himself and neglects the study of the Torah or the law and at the last will inherit hell. Aren't you glad things have changed? (laughs) And we're not there, ladies. We need some help. We're still not there where we're supposed to, but things have improved. So now you understand. This woman is surprised that a man is speaking to her. Now she's also surprised because Jesus is violating another social rule, which is Jews did not invite contact with Samaritans for the fear of ritual contamination. So you think Adventists are strict when it comes to the law. You need to read Leviticus. You need to read Leviticus. Man, they have some rules. I don't know if I could survive. Crazy. Really crazy. Really strict. In fact, one of the rules is that if if, if a cup is polluted, you don't wash it with soap and hot water. No, you break it and throw it away. I've been tempted to use that excuse every time my wife sends me to wash the dishes. Honey, they're polluted. (laughs) Throw them away. (laughs) Jews did not invite contact with Samaritans for the fear of ritual contamination. And Jesus is talking to a woman and asking for water. Now you understand why she's surprised. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Who are you? Verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, most of us Christians were so educated, we understand what Jesus meant when he said living water. But also the Greek word meant something else. Living water from the creek, fresh running water. So when Jesus is speaking about living water, she's not thinking spiritual She's thinking, hmm, the well, good water, but fresh running water, that's much better. Verse 11, sir, now I'm going to address you with a little bit of respect in case you give me something. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is so deep. Where can you get this living water that you're talking about? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his son and his flocks and herds? You see, the Samaritans claim Jacob as their father, while the Jews claim Abraham as their own father. So the woman is saying, are you greater than Jacob? Verse 13, Jesus answered, everyone, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Wow, thirsty now. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming to draw from this water. Verse 16, he told her, go call your husband. Uh, Problem, verse 17, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right. When you say you have no husband, the fact is that you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. 
What you have just said is quite true. Congratulations. Verse 19, uh, sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Now, she's not ignoring Jesus. She's not detaching from this conversation. In fact, she's going deeper. For years, I thought, oh, you know, this, this, this lady's avoiding this conversation. She doesn't want to talk about her personal life. But no, it's the opposite. She's in the presence of somebody who knows so much about her life. Maybe this person, maybe he's a prophet and he knows more. He can answer the theological question that has been driving Samaritans and Jews crazy for hundreds of years. So if this guy can solve the problem, who cares about my personal life? Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Please answer this. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you Jews, Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. This is actually Jacob's well in the 1920s. This is where the conversation took place, and that's the mountain that the, the Samaritan woman was referring to. She was saying, you know what? Our fathers say that the right place to worship is Mount Gerizim. But you Jews keep saying that it's in Jerusalem. Please, since you know so much, can you solve the theological problem that we have? You see, uh, Samaritans were the, the only ones concerned about this problem. The Jews had uh, this thing called the Babylonian Talmud, which was as instructions written while, while they were in exile. And they wrote something about how they can solve the problem between Samaritans and Jews. And they were saying, well, when can we all get along? When will the Samaritans be accepted? And Rabbi Ishmael said, you know what? The reason they're not accepted is two things. They marry illegitimate women, but not the brother's widow. And also, they need to deny Mount Garrison and confess Jerusalem. After this, he who robs a Samaritan is like one who robs an Israelite. Now you understand. The woman is in the presence of a prophet. Somebody who knows details. Who knows things that are deep and maybe hidden. Can you solve the problem? Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Verse 21, Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, and he's not putting her down. Samaritans believe in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. That's about it. They didn't believe on the prophets, the Psalms, the Proverbs. So they had, uh, you know, not a clear picture of who God was. And Jesus is saying, you know what, you're worshiping the same God, but you have no clue. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. A better translation comes from the Jews. Because Jesus, the Savior, the Son of God, was a Jew. Verse 23, yet a time is coming, he continues saying, and has now come. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Verse 25, the woman said, 
whoa, whoa, so much information. Hold on, hold on. I know that Messiah, the Christ, is coming. You see, Samaritans believe that the Messiah would come just like the Jews. In fact, the Messiah was called Taheb, the one who returns. They believed that this Taheb was going to come and teach them the right way of worship, the right things to do. And so when, when Jesus is speaking, she's saying, oh, my God, maybe this is it. You're putting it together. I know that Messiah, when he comes, he will explain everything to us, right? Jesus declared, verse 26, I who speak to you am he. For the first time in his ministry, he confessed that he was the Messiah. He didn't do it to the senior pastor of the synagogue. He didn't do it to the senior pastor of the temple. He didn't do it to the cool crowds. He did it to an outcast woman, a Samaritan woman. He confessed, I who speak to you am he, the Messiah, the Savior. Verse 27, just then the disciples returned, and it seems like they ruined the story. Just the disciples returned, and we were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Verse 28, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who had told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out to the town. They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Now, this is the longest dialogue recorded in the Bible. And it's there for a reason. You see, there's something here that John wants to tell us. It started with verse 4. The minute he wrote, he had to to go through Samaria. He's telling readers there's something in this story that all of us need to pay attention. Here in the year 2009, we're, we're concerned about living a good life, being good disciples, following God's commands, loving God and loving people. And I believe one of the best ways we can do this is by imitating Jesus. Three things that I suggest that we can learn from this story is that if we're going to love people, loving people begins with one person at a time. Notice he goes to Samaria. He's not looking for the VIPs. He's not looking for the mayor. He's not looking for the important people. He goes and speaks to a woman, one person. In fact, this is how he begins his ministry to the Gentiles. I know for us, this is kind of messed up because usually when we think about outreach, when we think about loving people, we think about crowds, we think about masses, we think about numbers. I remember being part of, a, of an evangelist crusade of several years ago and, 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 you know, it was not successful in the church's term. And, and, and so they were trying to just inflate the numbers of people who got baptized. And I'm just like, there's something wrong here. Thou shalt not lie. But they are talking about so many baptisms because when it comes to loving people, we have to show that we love people by the hundreds. But Jesus in this story is teaching us loving people begins with one person at a time. In fact, if you keep reading verse 39, it's going to say that the Samaritans from that town, they believe the woman's testimony. 
In fact, verse 40 says that the Samaritans came to him and said, stay with us two more days, please. Verse 42, we no longer, they went back to the woman and said, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the Savior, not of Israel, not of the Samaritans, the Savior of the world. Loving people begins with one person at a time. And I know we struggle with that. I remember during our mission trip to Rotan, Honduras, I, I went to town and I was at the store buying some supplies for our team and I ran into a pastor from the island and he was so excited that we were there. He was thanking me. He's like, oh man, tell your church that was so awesome. Next year, next year, you guys got to come to town where there's all these kinds of people, all these churches. We can bring hundreds of people to you. You guys are in the middle of nowhere. And I said, well, that's why we're there. Because that's where they need us. Loving people begins with one person at a time. So maybe it begins with the person next to you, person living with you, the neighbor next door, your co-worker sitting in front of you, your classmate. Who knows? We always think about masses, crowds, and numbers. Jesus is telling us loving people begins with one person at a time. The other thing I learned and I want to suggest that maybe we can implement is that Loving people takes time and energy. Notice Jesus is going through Samaria. He's tired. You know, when you get out of work sometimes, it's Friday, you don't want to talk to people. You know, just, just vegetate in front of the TV or in front of a book or, you know, sit in the couch. You don't want to talk to people. Jesus is so tired for six. He sit at the well and there's this Samaritan woman and, okay, let's talk. Because it takes time. It takes effort. In fact, the, the Samaritans asked him to stay two more days, two more days. He had to check his BlackBerry, cancel a couple of appointments because it takes time and it takes effort. This week I was at Costco and I ran into several people that I know, friends of ours, church members, you know, Jerry and Loretta, Kapitsky. We chatted just for a little bit and, and then we continued Shopping. You see, Costco is like Toys R Us for adults. You know, so many good things that we can get. It's like, oh, from food to electronics to books to clothes. It's like, whoa, where do I start? So we were just in the car, pushing the cart. And then suddenly I see this, this lady that I haven't seen in years. And I tell my wife, let's hide behind the watermelons. So we're just walking with watermelons, pushing the car, just going around Costco. We go to the bread section and there she is. Pushing her cart, looking at bread just like us. I told my wife, let's go to look for ice cream. So we go to the other side and she's following us. She's following us. Somehow we're looking for soda and she's there too. Finally, we run into her and she's like, hey, Pastor Saul. I'm like, hey, haven't seen you in a while. What a surprise. How you doing? And she begins to tell me about her life, her kids' life, and her co-workers and friends' life. And I'm tired, and I'm just like, oh, trying to stay awake, you know, thinking, should I go get a book, you know, while she finished her conversation. And she just keeps talking about her problems and her challenges, the economy, politics, this, the other. And I'm just like, oh, my, this lady doesn't get it. I'm busy. I have 
things to do. In fact, right now, I have to go home and prepare a sermon on loving people. See, loving people takes time and energy. We may not want to admit it. So next time you're serious about loving your husband, maybe turn off the radio. Next time you're serious about loving your kids, maybe just sit down and listen. Maybe next time you're thinking about loving your neighbor, actually take the time to find out what's going on and be ready to be late for your next appointment. Loving people takes time and energy. Another thing I want to suggest to you that I learned, loving people does not allow one to make judgment. Loving people does not allow one to make judgment. Anyone knows this story. All of us are so familiar with this story. When we read verse 16 to 18, that Jesus says, where's your husband? I have none. That's right. Five, you had five. Now the one you have is not your husband. Oh, there are books written, commentaries, sermons preached about the adulterous Samaritan woman. She's sometimes called a prostitute. But if you actually study the story, there's nothing that tells you that she was a sinner. Pay attention, read the story. And find out that we brought our own judgment as we interpret this story. Jesus did not care about how she got to five husbands. She cared about her. In fact, she could have had five legal marriages. After all, they followed the Pentateuch, the five books of the Old Testament. And there's a rule in Deuteronomy chapter 25 that says that if your brother, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. In fact, her husband's brother shall take her and marry her. Could it be that she marry a brother, he die, he marry another brother, die, and just like the story of Tamara, we don't know. And maybe the person that she is with is too young to be married, just like the story of Tamara. We don't know, but we brought our own judgment into the story. And yet, Jesus is saying, loving people does not allow one to make judgment. In the book on Christian, written by David Kinman and Gabe Lyons, it's a research by the Barnett Group done on people outside of church, outside of the Christian faith. This research, um, they had a lot of questions and they asked them what they thought about Christians. And so they came to the conclusion that Christians are unchristians. This is a little quote that I found that makes sense. It says, Christians in our culture have become identified with this perception. Nearly 9 out of 10 young outsiders, 87% of the people interviewed, said that the term judgmental accurately describes present-day Christianity. This was one of the biggest labels, one of the three biggest labels people had. Just to put this in practical terms, when you introduce yourself to a 20-something neighbor and you mention your faith, hi, I'm a Christian, 
chances are he or she will think of you as judgmental. See, loving people does not allow one to make judgment. In fact, all of us know the most popular promise or Bible verse of the Bible, John 3, 16. For God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. Anyone who believes will be saved. We love that verse, but we forget there's verse 17, a powerful verse that says that the God did not send his son, Jesus Christ, to judge the world, but to save through him. Amen. Loving people begins with one person. Loving people takes time and effort. Loving people does not allow one to make judgment. It's my prayer that as a church, we continue to follow Jesus. We continue to stay in contact with God and in contact with our neighbor. Because if we're supposed to follow our mission statement, loving God and loving people, maybe Jesus is the best example after all. Sing with us, he knows my name. Loving you and loving our neighbor.
We promise to follow the example of Jesus. So bless our effort. And now as we practice what we learn, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.